episode of last minute politics my name is pepper coyote and i am here alone again because <laughs> because my schedule is still in crazy flux we might be starting that the the other mm, the, a whole bunch of vague information here we go the the uh the, the new politicky thing i was uh talking about in the last episode and in the last uh, patreon post that might be starting this tuesday we'll see i'm gonna see how it goes and then i'll let everybody hear about it because if it's a complete failure i don't Maybe I don't want you to know, okay? Maybe I want to hide my failures. Maybe I want to hide my kids, hide my wife. Then I have a happy life. But today we're talking about a couple of things. First, we got to, got to, got, we, I, you can't not be talking about Israel Palestine right now because, uh, it, it's, it's happening. I, I've been saying this about the last few conflicts because they're happening more and more rapidly and more and more rapid succession. But this might be the kickoff to World War Three, maybe. Maybe it's this. Maybe it'll be something else in another month. But like every 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 month or or three, it seems there's a near like crisis level conflict starting. Like I kind of uh, thought for a bit the, that the whole like Burkina Faso uh, rebellions in Africa against their French uh, controlling powers. I thought that maybe that could be the kickoff to World War Three. Who knows? That's how we got into Vietnam. France was like, hey, take care of these dirty people for us who are living in our land controlling our resources <laughs> and then uh, we 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 sat in that for a decade or so that conflict that the west lost where it turns out the 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 dirty idiot freaking half human animalistic vietnamese scum people yeah it turns out they could defeat the most powerful and sophisticated military in the world because uh, they have more at stake because it's like their lives and uh, you're 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 not going to beat that with pretty much anything other than like, all right, let us simply drop a um, hundred nukes. And even then there'd be freaking cockroach mutant people coming out of the rubble to still freaking push away Western powers and influence from <laughs> like, I'm determined. This is the course of history and this is where it's going to go. Imperialism will lose. It's just a matter of when, which conflict is going to be the final one. And now that we have, uh, other developed world powers, I'm sorry, more developed world powers than the United States just kind of hanging around. It might not even be a big world war. I, I doubt it can happen without a World War III because the the bourgeois powers will, they're not just going to go down peacefully. Historically, they have never gone down peacefully. Like, go go a step back. The monarchy, did they just say, oh, yep, sorry, we're, we're done being monarchs. You, the uh, emerging bourgeois class of merchants and Guild leaders, you may simply have political power. It's, we thank you very much uh, for your for your kindness. We will exit our castles and go get a job. Yeah, that didn't happen. I very much doubt. And historically, whenever the bourgeois class has been overthrown, such as in like China, Cuba, uh, USSR, Vietnam, etc., it has come with extremely bloody conflict. Not started by the socialists, but started by and continued by the bourgeois ruling class that refuses to allow power to be rendered from their hands. Now that we have China as a, a world power that has outpaced the U.S. in most meaningful uh, measurements and will outpace the U.S. in all measurements, uh, probably by 2025, 
we're already getting beat in like life expectancy. They get to retire 10 years earlier than us. Like it, it could be a slow, gradual death <laughs> of, of Western imperialism. Who knows? China will just keep filling roles the U.S. used to play, as is already happening in global politics. Like, the U.S. continues to lose its, quote, footholds in, like, Africa and the Middle East because the U.S. shows up and uh, kills a lot of people, causes starvation, mass poverty, misery. They'll overthrow a leader if they don't like them. Sometimes they'll overthrow a leader, like in the case of, oh, God, I'm going to say the wrong name. Um, It's Brazil. And that's, is that, is Brazil Bolsonaro? All right, Googling. Yeah, Bolsonaro. The Western establishment was was a uh, was scared of Lula, who was the the leftish. Le- he's not like a radical socialist or anything, but he was the center left candidate, Lula da Silva, current president of uh, of Brazil. So the Western powers like, oh shit, we can't have that guy be in charge. He only does most of what we want him to do. So we're gonna get him in jail over some nonsense, and then uh oh, we got Bolsonaro, a, a far right fucking psychopath who's out. <laughs> <laughs> Who is worse? Uh-oh. So then they got Bolsonaro kicked out, and then they got Lula back out of jail. Now he's president, Then now they're trying to send Bolsonaro to jail. Like, it's this meddling must stop. <laughs> it never works out well, and the whole world has kind of seen that. Thus why the whole rest of the world, the, quote, international community, the actual international community, not just NATO... <laughs> When they have to make deals, they look away from the U.S. at this point. China offers better incentives even just from a pure, cold, calculating business perspective. They offer better loans, so they're going to go with them. And that's been happening for a couple of decades now, and it's only continuing and accelerating. And eventually the U.S. will just be this screaming child in the corner who's like, no, you have to do everything I say! And the whole world is just like, yeah, sure, man, whatever. And they'll just move on without us. That's what I, that, I think that is equally likely to a World War III nuclear war (laughs) situation so let's get into it i got two little ones here first story this is from morocco world news security assessment reveals israel opened fire on music festival on october 7th subheading israel opened fire on hamas gunmen but also hit other people attending the festival on october 7th A new report based on Israeli security assessment said Israeli helicopters targeted the music festival where hundreds were killed on October 7th in Israel. The report revealed that Israel used a military helicopter to attack the Hamas gunmen in the festival, but was not able to fully identify them, causing the occupation forces to also target some of their own citizens. Quoting, An investigation into the incident revealed an Israeli military combat helicopter that arrived at the scene from the Ramat David base fired at the terrorists and apparently also hit some of the revelers there, Heretz reported. According to the assessment, gunmen from the resistance movement Hamas had no information about the festival which was held close to the border with Gaza. Israel's Channel 12, which also received a copy of the assessment, said that Hamas gunmen only found out about the festival with drones and from the air as they parachuted into Israel. The assessment came out following the investigation and questioning of captured Hamas members, who confirmed that the resistance movement had not planned to target the event. Israeli security services found no mention of the festival's location on the maps of target locations identified by Hamas before the October 7 surprise attack. Al Jazeera added that one of the findings supporting the assessment showed that Hamas militants did not approach the festival from the border direction, but rather from a nearby highway. The event had originally been scheduled to take place on Thursday and Friday, with Saturday added to the program only on Tuesday that week, Al Jazeera reported. Many festival goers were also able to leave the festival the same time Hamas members showed up. 
The surprise attack from Hamas, also known as the Al-Aqsa Flood, was promptly followed by an unprecedented Israeli campaign targeting civilians in the Gaza Strip. So far, Israel has killed at least 12,000 people, while more than 32,000 others have been injured. Israel's occupying forces have targeted thousands of buildings, shelters, schools, hospitals, and places of worship amid an international failure to impose a ceasefire and sanctions against Israel. So, uh... The, like the Morocco World News's stance is pretty obvious here, and Morocco is a, a like I, I hate when like countries are just like this is a Muslim country and this is a Christian country and this is a Jewish country and this is a this is a <laughs> like this is a chocolate pudding country and this is a vanilla pudding is a butterscotch country. Everyone here loves butterscotch. Like I, it's just such a crazy simplification, but it does uh sort of reveal how. Man, here in the United States, most of the people, uh, a, a large portion of people leading protests, especially against the Israeli genocide of Palestinians, are in fact Jewish people. All of the information that I have in my head that, that has influenced me, my opinion on this, this matter, has been delivered to me by Jewish people. It's Jewish academics, journalists, scholars who come out and say, look, this is what is going on. And then when people say, oh, you just hate Jewish people, they go, well, I mean, my mom was in Auschwitz and my dad was in Auschwitz and my grandma died. And like, it, it just immediately reveals the, the opportunism coming from the other side where they, they will happily all day talk about Holocaust, Holocaust, Holocaust. Because the Holocaust happened, uh, Israel is just allowed to indiscriminately murder whoever they want. And then you talk to the, the, to the majority, the vast majority of just normal Jewish people, working class Jewish people walking around the world, and they are against it. Heck, a huge chunk of Israelis are against this. <laughs> Maybe not necessarily for the same reasons I might be or other uh, people might be, but... They are. Heck, a lot of th people say, look, he's not doing enough. <laughs> Either way, this, this, uh, this ongoing extermination of the Palestinians is, n is not horribly popular with anyone other than uh, those with large amounts of stock in weapons manufacturers, the U.S. ruling class, every single United States politician. I'm sorry, I think there were seven people in, the, in Congress who voted against sending Israel more weapons. <laughs> Like, how low of a bar is that? We've only given them billions and billions of dollars in the latest rocket technology, but surely they need more. <laughs> so the heart of what this uh, story is, is, is pointing out here, you've, we've heard, if you're paying attention to this, you've heard as well, that on October 7th, Hamas uh, came down and just rained hellfire on a music festival. It's like, look how barbaric and evil they are. They're attacking a music festival. Like, these are people just going to a concert. Well, first thing, first fact to keep in mind, that concert was right up against the the Gaza border fence. So it's kind of like if uh, right on the outside of Auschwitz, they were having like a, an umpapa German music festival. <laughs> just, like, it doesn't look good. It's not, it's not good. It doesn't mean that like the people organizing it are intentionally evil or doing this for optics reasons, but it doesn't look great to do your music festival directly next to the concentration camp. Uh, Another thing to keep in mind, and this has been this has been coming out for for like basically the next day. This was already being said. Uh, this this article mentions reports because now there have been a couple investigations. Uh, yeah, a new report based on an Israeli security assessment. So it's an Israeli security assessment. So it's not even like Hamas is coming out saying here's exactly what happened. Believe us and don't ask any questions. These are Israeli security assessments. 
the people dropping the the Israeli soldiers who are uh, shooting at the cars and people leaving the music festival, escaping, fleeing, evacuating the music festival, uh, said themselves that they could not they could not easily d- distinguish between Hamas military targets and civilian targets, so they just shot everyone. Like that's them saying it. It's not me going, oh, I got to make a cartoon caricature of how evil Israel is to push my personal agenda because I'm paid by big, big Palestine is funding me. <laughs> no, man, they said it themselves. We can't tell who's who. We're just going to light up everybody. And isn't that disgusting? Like, isn't that a thing that is deplorable and should be rejected as a tactic? Like, isn't that a, des- a despicable thing to do? in a military conflict, just indiscriminately target everyone leaving a, in a particular area. That's the kind of shit that like the, the cops do here in the U S luckily not always with live ammunition, but with tear gas and rubber bullets all over the place, they just gas everyone. Like, remember that we were having protests and I, th- I think it was Portland, like the Portland police just gassed a whole block of just, just people being around, not protesters. I mean, maybe a couple of them were protesters, but like just indiscriminately attacking, like that's not a good thing. And we would criticize it heavily if it was happening here. This seems a good a point as any to remind you all. I have a Patreon. Go to patreon.com, type in last minute politics. You'll find us. You can hear all of these luxurious coffee sipping breaks that I'm taking that I've hopefully edited out, like like right now. Mmm, goddamn, you would never know. That was a 45-minute coffee break that I've just now returned to the set. <laughs> So there was a massive, massive protest uh, for a in favor of a ceasefire in Israel and Palestine. I say and Palestine. It's it, this is the, so one sided of a conflict. It, you can't overstate. So really, it's we're really, really hoping that Israel will stop shooting at the Palestinians. And a good way to get that to stop, to guarantee that would happen, would be for the United States to withhold military aid. Because if we stop. A lot like with Ukraine, if the U.S. stops funding and supporting that this this war, it ends pretty much the next day. <laughs> we, you know how we don't have uh, healthcare over here in the U.S. Well, U.S. money funds I, I'm pretty sure 100 percent or close to 100 percent of the universal healthcare that Israelis receive. We do not pay for our own schools. We fund Israeli schools. We do not pay to pave our own streets. We pave Israeli streets. Like, I am not against helping out other countries. Like, international aid and co- uh, cooperation is great. Lahaina, Hawaii is still a smoldering pile of rubble, and these poor working class people are, are just in the slow motion process of losing their houses. And the U.S. could erase that entire issue with a billion Take one billion, you will save an entire town. Pepper, that's so much money. We have sent $160 billion just to Ukraine since the Ukraine shit started. How much have we sent to Israel? (laughs) I mean, since October 7th, probably only a few hundred million. But (laughs) do it over over the same period of time as the Ukraine proxy war. 
wow think of all the cities we could fix in the united states with that money think of the things we could do with that money all right that's from that's from jesus christ superstar that's uh, a one of the pharisees sings that part (laughs) seriously i don't just say this to be a freaking contrarian or to cause discord amongst the populace why do we have magic millions and billions that just pop up out of nowhere whenever there's a war somewhere Usually against a group of totally destitute brown people. In this case, we're just fighting a concentration camp. Like, that's our big opponent. Our opponent is a concentration camp. Who is it? Auschwitz versus the German state. Ding, ding, ding. Who do we support? Who's going to (laughs) win? It is ridiculous right on its face. While at the same time, there are so many things that need solved in the U.S. We talk about them every day. You could fund our health care all year with a tiny percentage of what we spend on one of these nonsense proxy wars where we are just paying people to die for us because uh, notice we're not sending any U.S. soldiers over there or I think we actually kind of are. We just never talk about it. Uh, more civilians have already been killed in the Palestinian conflict, uh, genocide, extermination uh, by Israel than total soldiers, U.S. soldiers, died in the like Operation Iraqi Freedom. It was like 5,000 around about uh, American soldiers died in that conflict, which is a, it's very sad. I, I do not, I'm not happy that 5,000 Americans died. The 5,000 people at all died. They have killed 10,000 Palestinians in this time. Like I think it's like they're up to like 6,000 just children. Like, people under the age of 18. So just them. Sorry, they were terrorist children, I know. It was a terrorist baby they had to let die in the Al-Shira hospital uh, because they cut off all fuel so they couldn't power the incubators. And it wasn't, uh, it was more like 20. Like, all of the nonsense that Israel was saying happened on October 7th is happening, but it's uh, being done to Palestinians right now. Beheaded babies and all this shit. Yeah, that really did happen to Palestinians. <laughs> They've already reduced these numbers from, it was originally 1,400 people dead on October 7th, now it's down to 1,200. They've gone from 40 decapitated babies to they found a dead baby, and they don't know, that, like, cause of death is just not listed. We have the Al-Shira hospital, where they're bombing it, so, oh, Hamas has a super mega base under the under the hospital. Like, remember how Osama bin Laden supposedly had an entire fucking city built under a mountain somewhere, and they would bring out, trot out those freaking diagrams of, here he is, this is where the golf course is, and this is where the tennis course is. And this, like, when it turns out, no, sorry, he's just like living in a mansion over in Pakistan. They're doing the same thing. They don't even have new tactics. I guess they're just hoping that really, really young people are convinced by this. Because <laughs> I'm only 32, and I, it's already it wore off on me years ago. At this point, you just see the exact same nonsense trotted out for every conflict. They don't even write a new playbook for a new group of people. So. There was a huge protest in favor of a ceasefire in the United States. It was hundreds of thousands of people in D.C. It was like the biggest anti-war rally in terms of numbers since uh, since the Iraq War, since Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, there was then a counter-protest a couple days later where uh, a, a pro-war protest, your rare let's-go-kill-em-all protest that also happened in D.C. a few days after that, and... Uh, Here's a, here's a, a fun funny thing that may or may not have actually happened now that like I'm looking into it and you can't find a lot of evidence. Let me read the story and, and you'll see what I mean with like lack of evidence. So I see this. This is from Israel War Room. This is a tweet. 
Breaking, hundreds of Jewish Detroiters were prevented from attending today's pro-Israel rally in pro-genocide rally in DC when bus drivers staged a deliberate and malicious walkout. Bus drivers staged a deliberate walkout. Nearly 1,000 people flew from Detroit to DC <laughs> on chartered flights and buses. Nearly 1,000 people flew from Detroit to DC on chartered flights and buses were hired to take them from Dulles Airport to the National Mall. However, several buses failed to show up. Drivers had organized a mass sick-out day upon learning they would be taking hundreds of Jewish Americans to the pro-genocide rally. <laughs> Approximately 300 people were left stranded on the tarmac for 11 hours before being sent back home. This is not the only report of chartered buses canceling on Jewish groups heading to the rally, which was attended by a whole bunch of people. They say 290,000 plus because they just took the number that they think might have been at the... Uh, <clears throat> at the uh, pro-ceasefire, the anti-war rally, which they were saying is like around 300,000 people. And they're just like, okay, that's what we had, but put a plus on it. 290,000 plus. Ah. Uh, important facts to be aware of. This rally had, uh, there was, I don't remember exactly what organization, I think it was like it, like is organizations in Israel who were paying uh, people up to $250 to attend the rally. And yes, they say, well, that's <clears throat> that's a travel reimbursement. Uh, all right, give me a travel reimbursement to attend the anti-war rally. Weird how that never happens. All these protests that people are getting upset about, like they managed to, they didn't just bus people in, they flew them in and then we're going to bus them in and a couple of the buses didn't show up. I do want to point out that if you really believe that strongly in this cause, that you believe that it's actually the concentration camp that is going to exterminate the most powerful military in the region... And you care so much about this that you would fly all the way from Detroit to D.C. and you're in Dulles Airport and you won't get, uh, I don't know, like a Uber to. <laughs> like here, let me look this up. I want to see how far, like how far away is Dulles to National Mall? Let me see. Like how far away is it? That's half an hour by car. <laughs> Nothing will stop the unbeatable spirit of the Israeli Defense Force who will exterminate every dirty Arab cockroach from the... Nothing will stop... Except for a 30-minute drive uh, from Dulles Airport to D.C. Then we cry and cry and go back home to Detroit and uh, collect our $250 checks for going to this protest. Like, what a bunch of bitches. <laughs> if, <laughs> if I flew out there for an anti-war rally and they're like, well, sorry, we, we can't get you the last half hour drive to the thing. I'd fucking walk. <laughs> how far is it to walk? Eh, 10 hours. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Oh, is there a train? Let's see. Public transport. So if they just got on regular buses, not chartered buses, regular buses, you can be there in under two hours. How much do you really believe in this shit? If I, okay, so let me uh, let me get to my whole, like, I don't know if this really happened or not thing. I'm reading from Fox 5, Washington, D.C., local news. Deliberate and malicious. Charter buses allegedly refuse to drive pro-Israel demonstrators to rally. <laughs> they say allegedly, and that's part of where I'm like, can't find evidence. Hundreds of demonstrators arriving in D.C. for the March for Israel were, were reportedly left stranded at Dulles International Airport after charter bus drivers refused to take them to the National Mall for the rally, organizers claimed. 
The Jewish Federation of Washington confirmed that a speaker at the march told the crowd, so they've confirmed that a speaker told, that's what they've confirmed, a speaker told the crowd of nearly of nearly 290, so we've gone from 290,000 plus to nearly 290,000, that some 900 people who flew in, see that would have put them over the edge, man, they would have had 291,000 maybe, who we don't know, or nearly... Uh, who flew in on the chartered planes, were left at the airport when buses that had been organized for them failed to show up. That speaker estimated that some 600 people made their way to D.C. for the event on their own, but others were stuck on the tarmac all day. We have learned from the bus company that this was caused by a deliberate and malicious walk-off of drivers. Fortunately, many were able to travel to the march, and we are grateful to the drivers of those buses that arrived. A spokesperson for the Jewish Federation of Detroit, which organized the transportation, told Fox 5 in a statement. So, uh, no one... I, I see no quotes or uh, stories, statements that are explicitly like, I'm a bus driver that refused to take people to the genocide rally. Like, I would love to, it would make my heart feel good if, if some random bus drivers are like, you know what, fuck that, we're not taking people to the genocide rally, I will not be part and parcel to this. <clears throat> but it's also equally possible that they, like, last minute tried to hire a bunch of buses and they just didn't have enough drivers, and they just didn't show up because they just didn't have anyone to drive the bus. That is possible. Or they just made the entire thing up. <laughs> also possible. <laughs> Fox 5 also reached out to Dulles International Airport for comment about the alleged incident. In a statement, Metropolitan Washington Airport's authority said that several signature aviation and Atlantic aviation flights came into the airport Tuesday and that, quote, the airlines involved were responsible for setting up bus transportation for their passengers. They added that, Everything is operational at Dulles International, and there is no strike by any of our employees. So what happened? I just, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, what actually happened? Did a bunch of bus drivers say, we're not taking you to the genocide rally? Did they try to order, like, 30 buses, and they're like, man, we only have 26. And then that's what happened? So they're like, you know, Hamas <laughs> sent a brain ray. It, sorry, Hamas has several bus drivers planted in the, the Washington Metro Washington Airport Authority, specifically in case we were going to have a rally. And then their plan is to not take a small percentage of us to the rally. So if I read a couple of comments under here, like the second one is, I don't understand why they were stuck at Dulles. You can walk 15 minutes and catch the metro into the city. <laughs> oh, what are the comments? Are they telling them, no, you're wrong. They're from Detroit and weren't aware of that alternative. It's like, what, they don't have Google Maps? Oh, that's, <laughs> that's what their response is. Do they not have access to Google Maps? <laughs> and then a bunch of other people are asking for uh, the names of the bus companies. And, it's, and then if you read that thing, it's like, well, it's not really the bus company. It's like the airlines contracted buses with their partner providers and all this. Yeah. We are now going to move on and finish our reading from last time. If you forgot what we were talking about, we are comparing the the way that our media is choosing to portray a literal genocide of Muslims that is 
absolutely happening. Like sh- shadow of a doubt, proof is all over the place. Hundreds of thousands of videos, pictures, satellite evidence, reports from the the, the very militaries that are uh, perpetrating the genocide who openly admitted the politicians of Israel getting on TV saying, we will kill all Gazans. <laughs> like, we compare how the media treats that genocide to the air quotes genocide happening in Xinjiang province in China to the Uyghurs. We are reading from a book called The East is Still Red by Carlos Martinez. And if you uh, want to follow along at home or get a copy of the book, we are on page 120. I'm I'm backing up one section just so we can all we can all be so we can all be on the same page reading through this. Concentration camps. The specific charge most frequently leveled against the authorities in Xinjiang is that they operate prison camps where Uyghur Muslims are locked up in huge numbers. The the most oft-mentioned figure is 1 million out of a population of 13 million, so one-thirteenth of the state's population, the province. The alleged purpose of these prison camps is to eradicate Uyghur Muslim culture and to brainwash people into supporting the government, to, quote, breed vengeful feelings and erase Uyghur identity. The, quote, million Uyghurs in concentration camps story is a quintessential propaganda blitz through sheer repetition across the Western media, along with support from the U.S. State Department. This startling headline has acquired the force of a widely accepted truth, and yet the sources for this news are also and yet the sources for this news are so spurious as to be laughable. A 2018 China File article attempting to locate the source of this one million figure identifies four key pieces of research by the German anthropologist Adrian Zins, Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit Chinese human rights defenders, CHRD, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPI, and Radio Free Asia as U.S. government-funded outlet set up to specifically uh, broadcast anti-communist propaganda in East Asia. That's uh, Radio Free Asia. If you hear anything coming from the source of Radio Free Asia, you better be very suspicious. Like, not... <laughs> it's it's hard to be too suspicious of something stuff coming out of Radio Free Asia. A new player entered the game in 2021, the New Lines Institute, a think tank based at Fairfax University of America, which instituted, which issued the first independent report to authoritatively determine that the Chinese government has violated the UN Convention on Genocide. It is worthwhile considering whether these individuals and organizers most responsible for these high-profile accusations against China have any vested interests or ulterior motives. Adrian Zenz was the first person to claim that a million Uyghurs were being held in concentration camps. He is also something of a trailblazer in relation to allegations of forced labor and forced sterilization. His relentless work slandering China has been received has received an appreciative audience at CNN, The Guardian, Democracy Now!, and elsewhere. It is difficult to find a news report about China's alleged use of concentration camps that does not reference Zen's work. A hagiographic report in the Wall Street Journal highlights the outsized role of this one individual in the construction of a global anti-China slander machine. Research by a born-again Christian anthropologist working alone from a cramped desk thrust China and the West into one of their biggest clashes over human rights in decades. Doggedly hunting down data in obscure corners of the Chinese internet, Adrian Zenz revealed a security buildup in China's remote Xinjiang 
region and illuminated the mass detention and policing of Turkic Muslims that followed. His research showed how China spent billions of dollars building internment camps and high-tech surveillance networks in Xinjiang and recruited police officers to run them. Casually hinting at Zen's ideological orientation, the article notes that his faith pushes him forward, and that his previous intellectual activity includes co-authoring a book re-examining biblical end times. He feels very clearly led by God to issue anti-China slanders. In other words, Zenz is not simply a politically neutral data scientist with a passion for human rights. Rather, he is a hardened anti-communist and Christian end-timer. He is employed as the director in China studies at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, an arch-conservative organization set up by the United States Congress in 1993 in order to memorialize, quote, the deaths of over 100 quadrillion quadrillion victims in an unprecedented... It's, it's 100 million, I just making fun of it in an unprecedented imperial holocaust, such that so evil a tyranny as state socialism would never again be able to terrorize the world. In his book, Worthy to Escape, Why All Believers Will Not Be Raptured Before the Tribulation, he urges the subjection of unruly children to scriptural spanking, and describes homosexuality as one of the four empires of the beast. Given Zen's ideological affiliations and intellectual record, it would not be unreasonable to demand that his research be subjected to serious scrutiny. In reality, however, his evaluations regarding Xinjiang have been uncritically accepted and widely amplified by Western media and political machine. Another organization lending its support to the accusation that more than a million Uyghurs and members of other Turkic Muslim minorities have disappeared into a vast network of re-education camps is the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. ASPI is a think tank set up by the Australian government and has become highly influential in terms of molding the Australian public's attitude towards China. It reports about its reports about Xinjiang are among the most cited sources on the topic. ASPI describes itself as an independent nonpartisan think tank, but its core funding comes from the Australian government with substantial contributions from the US Department of Defense and State Department, earmarked specifically for Xinjiang human rights work, as well as the UK Foreign, Commonwealth, and Development Office. Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, and others. In summary, ASPI is knee-deep in the business of Cold War and the militarization of the Pacific, and there is a clear conflict of interest when it comes to discussing human rights in China. The most recent nonpartisan think tank to amplify anti-China propaganda in relation to Xinjiang is the New Lines Institute, described by Jeffrey Sachs as a project of a tiny Virginia-based university with 153 students eight full-time faculty, and an apparent conservative policy agenda. The New Lines report, the first independent expert application of the 1948 Genocide Convention to the ongoing treatment of Uyghurs in China, received extensive coverage in the Western media as the smoking gun proving China's culpability in relation to concentration camps, forced labor, and cultural genocide. The report was put together by the Institute's Uyghur Scholars Working Group, an illustrious group led by none other than Adrian Zenz. Canadian journalist Ajit Singh, in a detailed investigation from The Gray Zone, points out that the leadership of New Lines Institute includes former U.S. State Department officials, U.S. military advisors, intelligence professionals who previously worked for the Shadow CIA, private spying firm Stratfor, and a collection of interventionist ideologues. Further, the Institute's founder and president is Ahmed Alwani, otherwise best known for having served on the advisory board for the U.S. military's Africa Command. 
The BBC, The Guardian, The New York Times, Washington Post, and others all treated the New Line's report as if it represented the very pinnacle of academic rigor, without mentioning, even in passing, its connection with the U.S. military-industrial complex. It is abundantly clear that the popular narrative about Xinjiang prison camps rests on highly dubious sources. The evidence offered up by Zen's, ASPI, and the like is a handful of individual testimonies along with a small selection of photographs and satellite pictures purporting to show prison camps. These pictures do appear to prove that some prisons exist, but this is not a terrible, terribly interesting or unusual phenomenon. China has some prisons, although its incarceration rate, 121 people per 100,000, is less than 20% that of the U.S.'s. Several commentators have pointed out that it is not easy to hide a million prisoners, approximately the population of Dallas, as Omar Latif comments, Imagine the number of buildings and the infrastructure required to house and service that number of prisoners. With satellite cameras able to read a vehicle license plate, one would think the U.S. would be able to show those prisons and prisoners in great detail. Perhaps the most iconic image purporting to show a Xinjiang prison camp is that of a group of men in a prison yard wearing blue boiler suits. This turns out to be a picture of a talk given at Luopo, Luopu County Reform and Correction Center in April 2017. The Luopu Center is an ordinary prison with ordinary criminals, but it has been fallaciously used to prove, show, or insinuate either concentration camps or slave labor of Xinjiang people. Let's hit the new part after a big old coffee sip. Deradicalization. So we've set all that up. Let's see what he has to say about it. Deradicalization. The Chinese authorities claim that what Western human rights groups are calling concentration camps are in fact vocational education centers designed to address the problem of religious extremism and violent separatism. They combine classes on sociology and ethics, focused on trying to undermine ideas of religious hatred, with classes providing marketable skills such that the attendees can find jobs and improve their standard of living. The basic idea is to improve people's life prospects so they are less likely to be radicalized by fundamentalist sectarian groups. The threat from such groups is real enough. I just want to point out that the policy that America and Israel have on trying to uh, tamp down on fundamentalist sectarian groups and radical extremists who are doing attacks and stuff, their method seems to extend to bombing civilian populations... Uh, creating black sites like your Guantanamo Bay and abducting just random people. Because remember, almost nobody in Guantanamo Bay had a charge. And the people sitting there now, none of them have charges. None of them have been proven to be involved with any kind of terrorism. They now won't release them because they think they've turned them into terrorists. And if they let them out and talk to people, they're going to make more people be like, what the fuck? They did all that to you? That's ridiculous. I'm going to dedicate my life to killing them. <laughs> Which I don't even think would happen. Like, you, any interview with these people, they're like, guys, I just, I just don't want to be kept in <laughs> fucking, I just don't want to be kept in hell anymore. Please put me somewhere. So, again, we are not comparing China to perfection. We are not comparing the United States to perfection. It would be ridiculous of a standard to hold anyone or any country to. We are holding them to the standards of, like, Earth, what we actually have done. The U.S., drone strikes, bombs, weddings, that's how we deal with religious extremism, right? Like, after 9-11, we're like, there's too many terrorists, and the way to stop terrorism is to bomb it's people, just civilians, just a, the whole population of a country that isn't even the country, Saudi Arabia, that was responsible for the attacks. <laughs> 
China is trying this. Does that mean this method is perfect or even good or even the best method? No. I don't know what the fucking best method is. It's not, that's not like my area of study. I can pretty easily, with, with, with a reasonable amount of moral clarity here, say that I would prefer people who are headed down the path of Islamic extreme, any religious extreme, anybody who's like, I'm going to go out and kill everybody. I would prefer that they receive vocational and language training and then like be, hopefully you're trying to turn people into like productive members of society who have something to, who feel like they have something to live for. That's the only reason you're going to become a freaking terrorist is if you think you have no prospects in life and the only thing left is holy war, which you must wage. And this goes for way more than just Muslims. This is the Christians who are right now doing a lot of this bomb, like <laughs> all the generals issuing these bombings claim to either be Christian or Jewish in the Israeli situation and neither of those faiths fucking tell you to do this. <laughs> Maybe they should receive some vocational training and they could go get productive labor in society other than like telling a 17 year old, uh, they can't be 17, telling an 18 year old freaking Israeli to click on a guy's face and blow him up with a bomb like maybe that guy could do something more more constructive with their time, skills, and youth. The threat from fundamentalist sectarian groups is real enough. The biggest among them is the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, ETIM, which up until October 2020 was classified by the U.S. State Department as a terrorist group. It has sent thousands of its militia to fight alongside Daesh, which I think is ISIS, and assorted al-Qaeda groups in Syria. Between the mid-1990s and mid-2010s, there was a sequence of terrorist attacks in China carried out by Uyghur separatist outfits in shopping centers, train stations, and bus stations, as well as Tiananmen Square, killing hundreds of civilians. This corresponds with an increase in terrorism across the Middle East and Central Asia, in no small measure related to the West's proxy wars against progressive or nationalist states in the region." There were a, there was a lot more Muslim socialism going. Like Islamic socialism is like a whole thing, a whole brand of of leftist thought, and that does have quite a bit to do with why the U.S. is bombing stuff. You know, the oil and gas helps uh, as a, a more concrete motive, but but the bombing is also ideological. <laughs> in their attempt to keep left wing very reasonable, at least in my opinion, some of the times. Uh, people from taking power in the Mideast and Central Asia, they will instead back psychopaths. <laughs> they will, they'll back Osama bin Laden. They'll back, <laughs> it happens over and over and over again. And to believe that that wouldn't be happening in this case, why are you a baby? Are you, you don't have object permanence? Like if we pour the glass, if we pour the water from a, a tall glass to a short glass, do you think the volume has changed because it visually looks like less water? Like, oh, this is a different kind of bombing where we arm the most radical psychotic uh, elements of a population in hopes that it overthrows the moderate like socialist <laughs> groups that's just our freaking plan that's like the instruction booklet that's the easy start guide the quick start guide to the board game of america that's what it is like any population the chinese people demand the right to safety and security as such Terrorism is not a problem China's government can simply ignore. The vocational centers were therefore set up as a part of a holistic anti-terrorism campaign aimed at increasing educational attainment and economic prosperity, thereby addressing the, dis the disaffection that is known to breed radicalization. 
Educational methods have been combined with a focus on improving living conditions. In the five years from 2014 to 2019, per capita disposable income increased by an average annual rate of 9.1%. If my disposable income went up by 9% even once one year, I would shit my pants. China's approach to tackling terrorism is based on the measures advocated in the United Nations Plan of Action to Prevent Violent Extremism, which calls for a comprehensive approach encompassing not only essential security-based counterterrorism measures, but also systematic preventive steps to address the underlying conditions that drive individuals to radicalize and join violent extremist groups. That's quoting from the UN stuff. This is how the UN says you should deal with it. Thus, China is actively attempting to operate within the framework of international law and best practice. This approach compares rather favorably with, for example, the U.S.'s operation of a torture camp for suspected terrorists, not to mention innocent victims, snatched more or less at random in Guantanamo Bay, itself an illegally occupied chunk of Cuba. Without conducting extensive investigations on the ground, it is obviously not possible to verify the Chinese authorities' claims about how vocational education centers are run. For all we know, maybe they are frickin' torture centers, and China is just the most diabolical, clever country in history, and they can hide a million people, and nobody hears about it. What we can say with certainty is that the accusations about genocide, cultural genocide, religious oppression, and concentration camps are not backed by anything approximating sufficient proof. Meanwhile, the most prominent accusers all, without exception, have a known axe to grind against China. None of the foregoing is meant to deny that there are any problems in Xinjiang. The Uyghur people are never mistreated or ethnically profiled by the police. Like, it's, it's saying not that. It's not saying that the Uyghur people are never mistreated or ethnically, ethnically profiled by the police, or that there has never been any coercion involved in the de-radicalization program. I guarantee you when they say, hey, you got to come with us and go to this Votech school, they're like, no, it's like, uh, I think you misunderstand us. Like, I absolutely believe that people are coerced into doing it. But these problems, which are well understood in China and which the government is actively addressing, are in no way unique to China. Certainly, any discrimination against Uyghurs pales in comparison with, for example, the treatment of African Americans and indigenous peoples in the United States, or the treatment of da Dalites, Ad Ad mm, Adivasis, and num numerous other minorities in India. Very sorry to, if, if anybody's from those groups listening, I'm sorry for my pronunciation. Actually, I'm sorry to everyone, even if you aren't a, a, a Dalit or an Adivasis. You cannot have perfection be your criteria. Perfection is impossible. There is no magical place. Look at what the U.S. does. Look at what other people do. Is it better or worse than that? Because the U.S. has the most money and power in the entire history of the world. So if anyone's going to get judged against perfection, it should be the U.S. They should be held to the absolute highest standard, and they're held to none. Why Xinjiang? The perverse propaganda campaign around Xinjiang serves multiple purposes. It is a component of the U.S.-led New Cold War, a project of hybrid warfare designed to slow down China's rise, to maintain U.S. hegemony, and prevent the emergence of a multipolar world. It also connects to a century-old pattern of vicious anti-communism that aims to disrupt the natural solidarity of the working classes in the capitalist countries, and oppressed people generally might feel otherwise feel toward the socialized world. Lastly, Xinjiang's geostrategic importance means that it has a special role in any overall strategy of weakening China. Bordering Russia, Mongolia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyz 
Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, Xinjiang constitutes a key point along the major east-west land routes of the Belt and Road Initiative. It connects China to Central Asia and therefore also to the Persian Gulf, Middle East, and Europe. Xinjiang is China's largest natural gas-producing region. Oh, look, we just found the fucking reason, everybody. It's the center of China's solar and wind power generation and is crucially important for China's security. British political scientist Jude Woodward noted that Xinjiang's location puts it at the heart of China's blossoming trade relationship with Central Asia, part of the world where the confrontation between China's win-win geoeconomics and the U.S.'s old-style geopolitics are playing themselves out with the starkest contrast. China has produced that... China has proposed that Central Asia should be at the crossroads of a reimagined Eurasia connected by oil and gas pipelines, high-speed trains, and continuous carriageways with stability like highways <laughs> with stability underpined by growth and fueled by trade china offers a vision of a world turned on its axis placing not the middle kingdom but the entire asian continent at the center of the next phase of human development in order to disrupt this progress the us has resorted to destabilization and demonization and de yeah and demonization <laughs> i don't read the word demonization very often <laughs> The maximum goal is to lay the ground for a pseudo-independent Xinjiang, which would in reality be a U.S. client state and a powerful foothold for further aggression against China and other states in the region. The minimum and far more likely goal is to disrupt the value chains connecting China to the Eurasian landmass, thereby slowing down the Belt and Road Initiative and damaging China's trade relationships with Central Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. As an aside, the West's stoking of instability in Xinjiang and its imposition of sanctions expose the shallowness of its commitment to the fight against climate breakdown that's always like whenever you talk about this stuff bring it back to climate and if you really if you listener truly care <laughs> about climate change oh boy <laughs> In 2021, Xinjiang generated 2.48 trillion kilowatts of electricity from renewable sources, primarily solar and wind. Nearly 30% of China's total electricity consumption. That is a freaking huge. Around half of the world's supply in polysilicon, an essential component in solar panels, comes from Xinjiang. If the U.S. and its allies were serious about pursuing carbon neutrality and preventing an ecological catastrophe, they would be working closely with China to develop supply chains and transmission capacity for renewable energy. China's investment in solar and wind power technology has already led to a dramatic reduction of prices around the world. Well, thanks, China. I hope. <laughs> Instead, they are imposing blanket sanctions on China and attempting to cut Xinjiang out of clean energy supply chains. This indicates rather clearly that the imperialist ruling classes are prioritizing their anti-China propaganda war over preventing climate breakdown. It seems the slogan, better dead than red, lives on in the 21st century. I'd never heard better dead than red till I played like, Fallout 3. Hey, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for reading along with me. Uh, tell me what you think, man. Like, send me an email. Give me a comment. Freaking post at me. I'm not hard to find. <laughs> Have a good rest of your week. I got to run out of here and go back to work part two. Mwah! <laughs>